Tonight's our monthly prayer meeting. We're going to be praying for families. Um, I, initially, I had planned to do one praying for, do like on prayer warrior, I think is what I had, what I mentioned on Sunday. Um, but as I was putting it together, it was more focused on the family anyway. So I just decided to go with this. Plus, for the last three weeks, that's what we've been looking at on Sunday morning. So I thought it went well with what we've been looking at. The way God chooses to reveal himself to us always reveals something about who God is and what God is like. One of the ways God has chosen to reveal himself is as Father. In doing this, he explains those he redeems, he adopts as his sons and as his daughters. And and part of what this does is reveal to us God's heart for families. And scripture has a lot to say about God's heart for families. Now you've got the outline, Uh, I've got some slides to go with it, but there's nothing on the slide that won't be on the outline except the actual passages. Um, but just some things that to remind us, God created the family, right? Look at Genesis 2 in your Bible. We are going to kind of do a combination of sword drill tonight to look at things, and then I'll put some of them up on the screen, and then some I'll just kind of talk about, reference them and talk about it. But familiar passage, Genesis 2, 18-24. Um, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. But Adam And Adam gave names to all the cattle and the fowls of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my, my bone, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and, they shall, cle- and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Right. So God saw it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he created the family. Right? So family, marriage, wife children, husband, all of that is God's idea, right? And so that's an important starting point for anything we talk about with the family, is to know that the family is not, it's not a cultural invention, it's not something that, that man created on their own, it was all God and all God's idea. Secondly, uh, God intends marriage to be a reflection of Christ in the church, and we won't look at Ephesians 5, because we've looked at that for the last several weeks, but it's just a reminder That, again, marriage is God's idea. Marriage is meant to be done according to God's divine design. And and a part of what we see is marriage is meant to be a picture of permanent preferential love. right? So God intends marriage to be a reflection of Christ in the church. Just as Christ has a permanent preferential love for His church, so husbands and wives should have a permanent preferential love for one another. And then thirdly, God has a purpose for family. Uh, Scripture tells us specifically in Malachi... What God's purpose for the family is. Malachi says, did he not make you one? And yet yet had, yet had he the residue of spirit, wherefore one. And he might seek godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none of you deal treacherously against the wife uh, of his youth. And what Malachi is talking about there is that God's purpose for the family is that we would have godly children. Right? So there is that permanent preferential love and then out of that comes children who are meant to be godly children who are devoted to the Lord as their parents are. And then not only does God have a plan, He has a, a plan for how this will happen. Right? A plan for how this will happen. How does a family produce godly children? We'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, page 144. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9 says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all the statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest increase mightily in the, as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. Talk of them when thou sittest in the house, when thou walkest in the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Um, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them on the posts of thy house and on the gates. And so God's plan for godly children to be in the family is first for the parents to be devoted to the Lord, to be devoted to His Word, and then for them to teach their children what God has said in His Word. Um, and, and really the picture is that it will kind of be a continuing thing. Right? As children see parents live out their devotion to Jesus, as parents or children are taught uh, about the Word, they will then grow up, they will be godly people, they will train up their children the same way. And it will be a continuing discipleship process where one generation leads to the next, all devoted to Jesus. And then God has a reason why it's done in this way. Right? Look at Psalm 78. It's page 448. Uh, Psalm 78, Asaph writes, Give ear all my people to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known which our fathers have told us and we will not hide them from our from their children showing them to the generation to come the praise of the Lord and His strength His wonderful works that He hath done. For He hath established a testimony in Jacob and hath appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them even the children which should be born who would arise and declare them to their children that they might set their hope on God not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. They might not be as their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that set their not heart, set not their heart aright, whose spirit was not steadfast. The Lord, right? So, verse five, God established a testimony. That's a reference to what we just looked at in Deuteronomy six. So, this was a, a reminder of that, and, and this psalm gives us several reasons why God wants it to be done in this way. Um, God wants parents to teach their children. So that their children will know what God has said and done. It says, verse 4, we will not hide them from their children. And then the very first of verse 6, that the generation to come might know them. Right? Our, our kids need to know Jesus. And they need to know what God has said. And the primary way to do that is for parents to teach them. Again, that's the, I think, the best way. Because that's the way you know that they're actually being taught those things. Because you know out in the world, but probably not, you know... Nothing in culture is discipling them and teaching them. So parents do this so that the children will know what God has said and what God has done. Secondly, uh, so they will continue a godly legacy. Look on at verse 6. Generation to come would know them, even the children which should be born, and should arise and declare them to their children. Again, we see that idea of perpetual propagation. We teach our kids who grow up and teach their kids who grow up and teach their kids, and on and on forever. Right, we, we teach our kids so they will put their hope in God. Verse 7. They might set their hope in God. Right, the, the primary way kids are going to come to know Jesus, to live for Him, is to be taught. Taught, as we mentioned Sunday, to be taught the gospel, taught about their need for Jesus, and to be urged to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. That's the goal. It's not just to give them information. It's not just so that they will know, you know, trivia questions. It's not so they can just quote the books of the Bible. The ultimate goal is that they will put their hope, they will trust in Christ for their Savior. Uh, verse 7, it also says that they will remember what God has done. They might not forget the works of the Lord. Right? And I think part of this is not just remember the works of the Lord from Scripture, although that's certainly a part of it. It's also what God has done in our lives. If you remember in... You move into the book of Judges. It says, and I think in chapter 2, that there arose a generation which knew not the Lord. So Joshua and their generation had all died. They had not done the Deuteronomy 6 and what we see here. And the generation grows up and they didn't know. right? And, and so what they were missing out on wasn't just the Bible part, but they did not know the individual testimonies of their parents. They did not know. Their parents had not... Passed on to them, here's what God has done for me. Here's ways God has answered my prayer. So a part of the reason we do this is not 
just to let them know the scripture. We want that for sure. But we say, here's why I believe in Jesus. Here's how I came to know Jesus. Here's what Jesus means to me. Here's what he's done for me. Here's what he has done in my life. We want them to remember these things about God. We also want them to live for God. Look at on at verse 7. But keep his commandments, right? So not forget to know, but to, to keep his commandments, that they will do them. Again, the goal isn't to pass on information alone. The goal is to pass on the information so they will believe in Jesus and they will then live for Jesus. They will do the things that God has said. They will be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then number eight is, verse eight is probably my favorite. And they might not be as their father in a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. We teach them these things so they will not make the mistakes we've made. I think that's a huge thing. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I do not want my girls to repeat. I don't want them to do a lot of the same sort of things that I've done, waste the years I've wasted. So we teach them. We urge them to come to Jesus. We teach them to live for Him. And we do this so that they will not make the mistakes we make. Now, I like this. I like these sort of these truths, these ideas that God created the marriage. God has plans for the marriage. God has a design for it. All of this. Because it's great to know we're out here in the middle of real man's land, right? What I call real man's land. And, and most people don't even know we're here. I mean, even downstate... Typically, the only time the downstaters want to come up this way is when it's election time and they need our votes, right? I mean, that's just about it. And yet, God of heaven, He looks down upon this town in the middle of the panhandle, and He not only knows that we're here, but He knows about our families. He knows about our marriages. He knows about our children. And it was his idea for us to have a family. It's, he has a design and a plan and a purpose for, for us as we live here, as we raise our families. Right? And, and that's just a neat thing that, I mean, you talk about God being involved in the ordinary. Just being married and having kids and raising a family, that's, that's pretty ordinary. And yet God is involved. God cares. God has a plan and a purpose and a knowledge of those things. As we try to have godly marriages, as we try to raise godly children, we can do this confidently knowing God is for us. God wants this for us. We are doing God's will. As we try to strengthen our marriages, as we try to raise our children, as we try to encourage the kids of our church to come to Christ, we are absolutely doing exactly what God would have us to do. God is for our marriages being strong and healthy. God is for our kids coming to Christ and living for Jesus always. No matter how much the world might oppose the family, God is for us. And that is a, an encouraging thought. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a few minutes to pray. And as we pray, thank God for creating the family. Thank God for creating your family as you are. Thank God for revealing His purpose and plan for the family. And then begin to pray. Pray your marriage would be strong and healthy. Pray your children, your grandchildren would come to Christ and live for Christ. Pray for one or two others in our church. We know through the years there's been families in our churches that struggle and have had problems. We know probably there's some now that maybe we don't even know about. But pray that the families in our church would be strong. They would be healthy. They would be what God intended. All right, so let's take a few minutes and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you for your grace, your goodness. We thank you for the privilege of getting to gather in your house to study your word, to cry out to you, to know that you're here. Lord, we are thankful how you, you created families. We're thankful that you saw it was not good for us to be alone and you had a plan and a goal and a way for that. I, I thank you for my family. My wife and my children, Lord, I, I am blessed beyond measure with them. I thank you for the family I was raised in. I thank you for the family Kelly was raised in. Lord, the godly legacy that's been passed on to us. Help us to pass that on to our daughters and that they could pass it on to their children. And on and on it would go. Father, bless, guide, and protect the families in our church. We know, as we're about to look at, there are many enemies who are always seeking to disrupt and destroy anything that is good and pure and of use, such as a, 
a godly family, raising godly children. So, Lord, protect families of our church. Guide those that, Lord, are struggling in, in their marriage. Help them to resolve it, to work it out, and let their marriages be strong and healthy. Guide those that may be struggling with children who are going off and becoming prodigals. Lord, work and, and turn those children's hearts back to you and help them to, to be, Lord, reconciled to their families that things would work out well there. Bless those that are grieving and suffering right now under various hardships and losses. Comfort them. Let them know you are there and you're at work in their lives. Father, protect our families. Guide them so that Satan cannot get in and he cannot steal, kill, and destroy. That all of our marriages would be strong and healthy. All of the children of our church would grow up knowing Jesus, live for Jesus, and be devoted to him all of their lives. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So what we describe here, this is God's plan. This is God's design for all families. This is the way it's meant to be. Yet life shows us this is not always the way it is. The question we can have is why? If this is God's will, why don't families always follow God's design? The reason is there are enemies. There are enemies who would seek to oppose God's people as they seek to do God's will. And that includes in having a godly family. So the enemies, the, the, the Bible gives us three primary enemies. Right, The world is the first one. The world is the morally and spiritually corrupt system opposed to God and to His reign. Right, So the world, think of the world as sort of the culture around us. The culture around us would include things like pop culture, uh, music, movies, TV, books, magazines, news media. Uh, just the, the attitude, the morality of the culture around us. Now... It would include all of those things. Now think for a second about these things. Right? Think about popular culture. Think about current music, movies, television, books, TV, magazines, the news media, and the general attitude of the world around us. Do these things promote a family dynamic consistent with this? No, of course, of course they don't. They are very much opposed. Everything we just looked at Everything in the world is absolutely opposed to that. Tells us it's close-minded, it's old-fashioned, it's outdated, you can't define a family, all of these kinds of things. The world is constantly bombarding us with messages contrary to what Scripture has said. So that is one enemy we face in having a godly family. Second is the flesh. Now, if you've been in church for a while, the flesh is not a new concept. It, it is something every one of us has. The, the flesh is our sinful nature. It, it is our capacity and our disposition to put self above everything and everyone, even God. Our flesh is, it is the part of us, our internal wiring, that is resistant to the rule and the reign of God in our lives. Before we come to Christ... We are enslaved by the flesh. We, we are just dominated by it and led around by it. But once we come to Christ, our flesh then becomes crucified. And it's still there, but it's a struggle. It's, it's down, but it's opposing. We can conquer it. We can overcome it. But it's always saying, you don't want to do that. You want to do this instead. Right? So, again, when we look at all of these things... There's going to be something in us often that pushes back against it. There's going to be something in us that pushes back against a permanent perpetual love. There's going to be something that pushes back against God creating the family as a man and a woman who are together. There is something that's going to push back against God's purpose for the family. There's just something in us that's going to, to work to pull us away from God's divine design. That is an enemy. And then, of course, the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the main three enemies Scripture gives us. Now, the devil is, according to Scripture, a real being. He's not evil in general. He's not an evil influence. He's not the personification of all evil. He is a real being of absolute evil who hates 
and opposes anything and everything that is from God or for God. And this would include the family and God's design for the family. So these three enemies work together to oppose, to attack, and to destroy the family. Right? The flesh internally works against us and God's plans for our lives. Right? I mean, how many marriages are destroyed because one person has an affair? Right? That, that's the flesh. That is just, I want that and I'm going to put my desire over everything else. Or, or one spouse just leaves for no reason. Just I'm, I don't want the, the pressure of being a parent or a spouse anymore. Right? That's our internal wiring. Externally, the world seeks to arouse the flesh into action. Uh, the world opposes the family dynamic designed by God in such a way the flesh thinks that what the world is offering is better than what God has designed. Again, when you look at someone who has an affair or someone who just abandons their family, Often what's happened is the world around them, whether it would be the movies, the music, the TV, culture, the friends, has told them, you're missing out. You are missing out by being married to one person forever. You're too young. You're too pretty. You, I mean, you're missing out. You need to expand and to get out. And so the flesh says, that's a really good idea. And the body follows. They join and they go with it. The world will paint whatever picture is necessary to arouse the flesh to depart from God's divine design. And then Satan is essentially the one who controls the world. That's what it means when Scripture says Satan is the God of this world. Right? Satan's not the God of the mountains and the lakes and the plains and the seas. Those things declare the glory of God and show His handiwork. When Scripture talks about Satan being the God of this world, he is the God of this age. He is the God of the culture. He is the God of the media. He is the God of the music industry, the entertainment industry. He is the God of those things that are often so very opposed to the family. So Satan is the God of a world or a God of a culture promoting values and ideas contrary to Scripture. Right? Satan is the God of a culture which demands we accept any and all religions as equal in the name of tolerance. Satan is the god of a culture where eagle eggs are considered to be sacred and must be protected at all costs, but a fetus is just a clump of cells that can be destroyed at any time. Satan is the god of a culture in encouraging young people to rebel against and despise their parents. Satan is the god of a culture which rejects and opposes God's design for life, marriage, sexuality, and family. Satan is the god of a culture that promotes having affairs and abandoning your family and you be you and you live by your truth. All of these sort of things that oppose God's truth and God's family, all of those, they are come from Satan, the god of this world. Satan as the god of this world is the one largely responsible for all of the ways families don't follow God's divine design. And Satan does not work in just one way. Right? Scripture teaches that he has wiles and he has devices. The wiles uh, is essentially deceitful methods and strategies he uses and he employs to deceive and destroy humans or anything of God. The word translated as devices refers to a strategy of the mind. And it not only refers to the strategies that Satan thinks of on his own, but the strategies he thinks of that would mess with our minds. Right? And so the ultimate goal of Satan's wiles and devices is to wreak as much havoc as he can. To steal, kill, and destroy in as many ways as he can. Right? There is no one way he has to do it. If he destroys a marriage, there are a million ways he can destroy a family. And all of those are a win for him. Right? And a part of what the wiles and devices means is, what Satan is, is he is able to, to focus almost individually. right? Not Satan himself. But what, would, what might tempt me to destroy my family may not tempt you to destroy your family. And so Satan doesn't come at me with what he would come at you with. And he doesn't come at you with what he would come at me with. 
Uh, he, he is able to, to gear things in such a way that we are almost individually appealed to by these things in an effort to steal, kill, and destroy, to destroy our families. Now, while there are many devices, I think ultimately they fall into just a few kind of categories, broad categories. One, the primary one is deception. John 8, 44, Jesus says Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12, 9, Scripture says Satan deceives the whole world. And then 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, Paul said he was afraid Satan through craftiness, through his wiles, had corrupted the believers' minds and turned them from Christ. Now, one of the great examples of Satan's deception and the ways he is sneaky in doing it is the Gibeonites from Joshua chapter 9. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, as Joshua goes into the promised land to conquer it, he is told to make no treaties with anyone from the land at all. They are to... Run them out or kill them. Those are the only options. But not to make any treaties. So as Joshua's going in, and as they're conquering and they're moving forward and God is working, the Gibeonites hear about what God is doing, and they become afraid. And so they come up with a plan. They want to make a pact with Joshua, a treaty with him. But they, they figure that if they just walk up and say, hey, we're Gibeonites and we just live right over there, Joshua won't do it. So they have messengers, ambassadors, put on rotten, old, ragged clothing. They give them wineskins that are old and brittle and, and about to break apart. And they give them bread and food that's moldy and old and nasty. And they have them ride to Joshua's camp. And as they ride in, they say, hey, we've heard about your God and we want to make a deal with you. We want to tr make a treaty with you. And Joshua says, oh, I don't know who you are. You might be just from right over there for all I know. I can't do it. And the guy says, no, no, we're from really far off. These clothes, they were brand new when we got on the horse to come. This wineskin was fresh. This bread was just out of the oven. Now look at it all. And the Bible says Joshua, he looked at their food. He examined their clothing. And it says specifically, he did not seek the Lord. And then he made a treaty with them. And it turns out they did just sort of live right over there. And the treaty was binding. They couldn't break it and they couldn't kill them. And later on, like in the end of Kings, the Gibeonites were still living among Israel. So a Gibeonite. A Gibeonite is one who encourages someone to do something contrary to God's will by appealing to natural senses while discouraging them from seeking God's will or God's word for guidance. Right, so deception is a key aspect of Gibeonite influence. Don't think about what God wants. Don't worry about that. Just look at this. Just doesn't it make sense that God would just want you to be happy? I mean, does it make sense that, that, that these old sort of moral values would be the same today? The world is so different. We know so much more now. Who is it that encourages kids to get drunk, to sleep around, to send naked selfies, to do drugs, to rebel against their parents? Well, Gibeonites do. That's who. Who encourages husbands or wives to have an affair? Gibeonites, don't think about the long-term consequences. Don't think about your covenant with God. Think only about yourself and your pleasure in this moment. Who encourages people to be open to other religions and other forms of non-Christ-centered spirituality? Gibeonites. Come on, don't you think it's arrogant to believe that Jesus is the only way? Can, is God so narrow that your book and your way is the only way? Come on, really? Make no mistake, Satan and his deception is always behind the Gibeonite. He is always ultimately the one seeking to deceive. Uh, another one is temptation. Uh, this is probably what we're most familiar with. Matthew 4.3, Satan tried to tempt Jesus to sin. That's always a big deal to me. Satan will try to tempt Jesus. He certainly will try to tempt us. Now, I think when Satan seeks to tempt us, there are 
Four basic lies he uses. It's no big deal. That's the big one, right? I mean, it's no big deal. Come on, you're making too much of this. What you're talking, I mean, you're acting like this is a big thing. It's not that big, bro. You just don't have to take it that seriously. Or, no one will ever know. I think we see this in famous people. I mean, we sit in regular people too. But I always think of the politicians who get busted with affairs or sending out selfies, uh, inappropriate selfies to people. Why, why in this day and age would a politician try to have an affair or go to a, a brothel or something like that? Because no one will ever know. They're, they're smarter than the other politicians who got caught. No one will ever No, they won't get caught. And that's a lie Satan uses. Or you deserve this. I mean, how many many people who cheat on their spouses cheat because, well, my wife isn't this and, and I deserve more. Or my husband isn't this and I deserve more. Or how many people embezzle saying, well, I, I deserve more money than they're paying me. Right? I mean, the lots of people in lots of different ways sin because they feel they deserve more than they are currently getting. That is Satan deceiving them, tempting them. Or you don't have a choice. You're born this way. This is just who you are. There is no coming back. You, If you are this, you can never not be that. You can't help it. Kids are going to be kids. This is just how everything is. You don't have a choice. And it's a lie. All of these are lies and a part of Satan's schemes to draw to destroy us. It is temptation. And then in 1 Thessalonians 3 5, Paul was concerned that Satan had tempted them to turn from their faith. And I find that passage fascinating. Because Satan, in that particular instance, he didn't tempt them to a false religion. Right? As in 2 Corinthians, he was tempted that they, he was afraid they had been drawn away to legalism or something. But not here. He's not drawing them to deep and abiding wicked sin. He's not trying to draw them into the, the, the prostitution temples. He is just trying to tempt them to abandon their faith. Right? Because remember, in Thessalonians, after they came to Christ, they began to suffer. And their suffering was very much connected to Jesus. They were determined to follow Jesus, so they were suffering for Jesus. And Paul's fear was, Satan had said to them in their ear, whispered in their ear, things would be better if you just quit living like this. Just go back to who you were, and everything would get better. He was just trying to tempt them to stop living for Jesus. And it's safe to say, anytime someone stops living for Jesus, That's Satan. He's tempted them and turned them away. He doesn't have to draw them into deep wicked sin. He doesn't have to draw them to become a bailite. If he can cause someone to just stop. Uh, I did that and it just didn't work for me. He wins. If he can get an offense, right? Something bad happened in my life. And because this bad thing happened, God can't be real or God can't be right. He wins. All he has to do is get someone to leave their faith in Christ, abandon their service and their devotion to Jesus. Anytime someone gives up on their service and devotion to Jesus, they are giving in to Satan's temptation. And then third one is separation. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, Paul says he has a great desire to go back to Thessalonica and be with the believers. Not only did he have a desire, he had tried to go back, but he was unable. And he said Satan had prevented him. And it wasn't just like, the picture isn't just that Satan made it difficult, but Satan literally stopped him. I I can't remember, because I didn't study it out for this, But if I remember in just my own studies from times before, the the word that Satan uses is like, or the word that Satan uses, the word that Paul uses, is like almost like caused the road to collapse so that it was impassable. There was literally no way. Paul could not 
get there. Satan had done it. And Paul says, Satan had done it. And then in Galatians, uh, the Galatian Christians were being led away from Christ by false teachers. Paul had written to them to tell them these teachers were false. And the people had sort of turned on Paul. Been angry at him. Who did he think he was? And so he asked them, have I become your enemy? Because I'm telling you the truth. And there's a similar situation in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians he writes to them. And, and, and he tells them his heart is open to them. And he doesn't understand why their hearts are closed to him. And in both Galatians and 2 Corinthians, the picture is that Satan had not only was not really separating the people from the church, but from Paul, from someone who was trying to get them to Jesus, keep them on the right path. So from that, what we could say for separation is one, Satan works to keep people from church. I mean, that's the church is again, the church is not popular today. Even among those who would be professing Christians. I mean, clearly. And yet the church is God's idea. Jesus died for the church. He bought the church. He empowers the church. Through the church he conquers. Through the church the gates of hell will not prevail. The church is God's plan. Right? Not me and Jesus out over here, but the church. So who is it that turns people from the church? Who is it that would cause someone to get angry at maybe something I said and never go to church again? Who is it that would cause someone to come to church and because red didn't shake their hand, they determined that all Christians everywhere are terrible and they would never go to church again? Who is it that does stuff like that? It's Satan. Who is it that works in someone's life and says, I would rather stay home and watch Desperate Housewives than go to church? It's Satan. Right? When someone does not prioritize or value the church, it is always Satan at the root of that. But not only does he try to separate people from the church, he wants to separate people from those who would have a Jesus-like influence on them. And so we all know people that aren't serving Jesus. And we're, we try. We invite them to church. We pray with them. We pray for them. We try to share things. We, we talk about it. And what Satan wants to do is get them away from us. Because he has his own plan for their lives. And it does not involve them coming to church, getting saved, and living for Jesus. And so he will do what he can to separate them from us. From those who are trying to have a Jesus influence on someone's life. Now... Under those three broad categories, there's just a lot that can be done. So how do we, how do we defend against this? How do we defend our family? How do we defend the families of our church? How, if we see something going on in someone's life in a, in a family, how do we, how do we fight it? There's quite a few things. We'll have to rush through these because time is gone. One, check my own life first. Right, Psalm. 139, 33, and 34, search me and try me, O God. Right? That's where it has to start. We cannot effectively fight for the souls of others when our souls are not right with Jesus. As one popular author says, you cannot oppose the devil's plans in prayer if you align with him in your personal life. So we pray as the psalmist prayed, God, search me, God, try me, show me anything that's displeasing to you, and then we repent of it, we renounce it, we confess it, and we move on. Second, we have to be committed to Scripture. Jesus said if we continue in His Word, we will be His disciples and the truth will set us free. Paul, to those who were spiritually blind, he preached the Gospel. He told them about Jesus. And what this means for us, these two things mean for us, is we, we, have, we give an unwavering Bible answer to everything. Right? We never waffle, we never compromise. Someone says, are you saying this is a sin? If the Bible says it is a sin, we say, yes, that's what the Bible says. If they say, are you saying I'll go to hell if, and the Bible says they will go to hell if, we say, yes, that is what the Bible says. Now, culture says that's an unloving answer, but culture is wrong. There is nothing loving about comforting a loved one as they walk a path 
to sin and destruction and eventual damnation. If a parent let their child drink poison, and when they were interviewed, their reasoning for letting the child drink poison was, I didn't want to scare them. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I didn't want, to, I didn't want our relationship to be hindered. I just wanted them to be happy. That parent would go to prison. And we would say, what a horrible, horrible parent. We would not think in any way that was a good parent who put those things ahead of their child's life. In a similar way, we cannot be good parents or good spouses or good friends if we waffle about what Scripture says so that we don't have to argue, so that we don't hurt their feelings, so we don't scare them, so we don't hinder our relationship. Or we, they're just happy and we're okay with that. There are bigger things at play than all of that. Eternity hangs in the balance. We must be committed to Scripture. We have to fast occasionally. Um, again, we'll, we'll cover this quickly, but the story is Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. As He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a, a man there who's brought his son to the disciples to have the demon cast out of them. The disciples can't. Jesus does. The disciples say, why can't we? Why couldn't we do it? Jesus tells them in Matthew's account, Jesus said it was because of their unbelief. And then Matthew and Mark both say, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. And there are certain spiritual battles we'll never win apart from fasting. I don't know why God set the world up that way. But that's the way it is. There, there is just something about saying, I need God more than I need food. Or if for some physical reason we can't go from food, I need God more than I need TV or social media or I, I don't know, whatever, something. I mean, it is doing without something that, that's important. right? It's not doing without turkey bacon and saying, well, look, I'm fasting from that for 46 years now straight. I'm doing well. Right? It is doing without something that is valuable, important, usually somewhat necessary in our lives. Saying, I need God and His power and His intervention in this case more than I need my food, my social media, my whatever. There are just certain breakthroughs we'll never experience if we don't fast. And then we have to pray. Prayer is the only way. Fasting and prayer through the Word are the only things I know. To fight spiritual battles. So we, we pray against the evil influences causing these troubles. Now, most of us probably do not really know how to pray against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't know how to pray about the specific issues coming against our families, the families of those we love. So what we do is we end up doing one of two things. One, we, we copy a prayer. Now, we maybe buy a book on spiritual warfare, and we gives an idea of a prayer, and we... We copy it. I, I remember years ago there was a, a Southern Gospel singer who got caught soliciting men online and had to, of course, step down and all that. And he was, I was reading his blog as he was talking about trying to be delivered from this sin. And one of the things that they did was he went to a church and they, they took him up on the stage and he, he laid down in the crucifix position. They poured holy water on him and they, they prayed a certain prayer and said some things and had him do things while they did it. And, and he talked about how powerful, and, and it was just kind of this thing. But as you read it, one of the things you find is, it's not actually in the Bible. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible even remotely like that. So when we say, well, I'm just going to buy this book, and I'm going to copy what it says, it may make us feel good, but it's often not something we find in Scripture. Or we end up praying in a weak and passive way. We pray and not end up saying much more than God help. Which is better than nothing, but it's not, seems insufficient to me. When I am trying to pray for my family, I want more than God help. When I'm praying for families of people I love, I want to pray more specifically. And, and really, I want to pray more aggressively. I mean, when I am fighting for my family or the families of our church that I care about, I feel anger. At what I see the world, the flesh, and the devil doing to destroy, to steal, to rip apart. 
So what we need are our prayers that would counteract the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil on our families. We need bold and biblical, faith-filled, and, and I do believe aggressive prayers. So what we can do is, and I've given several options, we'll just look at a couple, just to I'd give you a picture of what we do. You pick a passage, but don't just randomly open up and pick a passage. Try to be specific about what's going on. So think about what's going on in the family. Think about what it is. Find a passage that maybe deals with that and use that passage and study it to, to find out what's going on about the situation, what it reveals, and, and how to pray. So someone starts believing something contrary to Scripture. Again, it could be so many different things. It could be a different religion. It could be something sexual. It could be just anything. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So, the diagnosis. What does this passage tell us about them because they're believing something contrary to Scripture? Well, they've, they've erected strongholds in their mind, right? They have embraced ideas that are keeping them from knowing God. right? That These high things, these strongholds, exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So what do they need? Well, they need those strongholds to be smashed. They need to know the truth which would set them free. They need their thoughts brought captive to the obedience of Christ. So how do we pray? Well, there's a lot of ways. We could pray and, and ask God to make them question their new beliefs. Right? Why do you now believe this when you've always been taught something different? Why do you think this is right when the Bible says it's wrong? Cause them to start to, to doubt the issues that are going. Pray God would bring truth to bear on their lives. Right? So let's say it's a kid that was raised in our church. Well, if they've been raised in our church and they've gone to Sunday school, they've been in church, they've heard the Bible, and there's some remnant of it that's stuck in their mind and in their hearts, even if they're completely shoving it away. Well, God can take what's already there and begin to bring it to bear, to, to rub against those strongholds, to make their lives miserable. And again, I, you've heard me say this before, I think we ought to pray for God to make them miserable. I think if someone is believing something contrary to Scripture and it is going to lead them to hell, we should not pray for God to bless them. We should pray for God to absolutely wear them out and make their lives miserable. Make the truth that they know push back against the lies they're believing until they cannot sleep, they feel sick at their stomach, until they repent of their sin and they turn back to Jesus. I absolutely believe we should pray that way. Um, Someone doesn't see their need for Jesus. We've talked about this one before a lot. This is one of familiar verses. So the diagnosis, they're blinded by Satan. They're perishing. That's what Paul says. If our gospel's hid, it's hid to them the lost, to the God of this world has blinded uh, the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right, So they are, in fact, blinded. They are blinded by the devil. They are deceived by him. Their need. Ultimately, they need basically two things. They need someone to tell them about Jesus. Right, That's kind of the key thing. It is they preach not ourselves, but Christ. And it's God who commands the light to shine as they hear the word. So they need... Someone to tell them about Jesus and they need God to work through that sharing of the gospel to reveal Jesus. So how do we pray? Well, we pray maybe we'd have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Or, or maybe sometimes we're not the one. Maybe we're not the one that's, that people would listen to. I mean, there are just some people that maybe they don't like us, but they still need Jesus. So we pray for God to send someone to them who would share Jesus with them. We pray God would make them see their need for Jesus. And again, we pray God would take the scripture, maybe they already know, and use it to penetrate the darkness of their hearts. Um, and the others 
you see there. I believe I put the diagnosis, the need, the ways to pray on all of them in there. But these are just, just a few. And it gives you an idea of how to, to be intentional. And this takes effort. I mean, it takes effort to look at the situation, think about the Scripture, what passage deals with this, what does it reveal, plan out a way to pray. But if we, we are going to fight for our families, the souls of our families and the souls of the families of our church, it, it takes that kind of effort. I mean, the Bible refers to prayer as, as work, laboring, agonizing at times. And, and so that's a necessity. For us to put forth that kind of effort. To, to push out the world, the flesh, and the devil from our families. It's going to take more than God help that family. It's going to take some effort on our part to just labor and agonize over them. So let's take a couple of minutes and pray. And maybe take what we've looked at here. And you can think of a family or someone in your life that needs to be prayed for this way. Go ahead and pray for them. Fathers, we seek to stand in the gap for our family, for the families of our church. Help us to, to see what's going on, to lay a passage on our heart that would work for that and help us to, to look through it, to diagnose the problem, to see the needs, and then to begin to pray in those ways. Lord, this is different than probably anything we've ever done. Help us not to be thrown because it's different. Help us to... Pray your word because your word reveals your will in your heart. So, Lord, for instance, we know it's not your will for any to perish, but for all to repent and to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So for those who are trapped in darkness, Lord, we know that it's your will for the gospel to penetrate that, that darkness and to shine the light of Christ there that they would be saved. We, we know it's not your will for any to believe things contrary to your word. So let the truth smash the strongholds and bring their thoughts captive. Help us to, to stand in the gap. Help us to, to agonize in prayer, to labor in the ways you'd want us to. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one last verse, and because I think this is important. As we fight, it can seem overwhelming as we try to deal with all of these things. Because it's just everywhere. I mean, probably we all have people in our families that are struggling. We know multiple other people who are struggling. It can seem overwhelming and we can feel defeated. But Jesus has won. right? Jesus has spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them, openly triumphing over them. The world, the flesh, and the devil are real, they are active, and they are influential. But as followers of Christ, we are more than conquerors because of what He has done. We are not fighting from a place of weakness and defeat. We are fighting from a place of power through Christ and a place of victory because of Christ. And I think that can influence how we pray. If we feel defeated, then we pray weakly and we pray as though we're defeated. If we understand our position in Christ as victors with Christ, we pray more boldly, we pray more confidently, we pray more aggressively. May God help us to understand who we are in Christ and that we do live and fight from a place of victory. Now let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer.